Well, good morning. As I shared a moment ago during our welcome time, today is the greatest day in all of human history, isn't it? Today is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you were with us on Friday, we came together and, and we remembered the life and death of Christ. It was a somber time as we walked around this campus and remembered and reflected upon what Jesus did for us on Calvary, how he died on the cross for our sins, and we had the opportunity to just interact with the Father and just spend some one-on-one time with him. And if you were here, I know that it was a special time for you. We came together and we recognized how he died on the cross for our sins, but that grave could not hold him, could it? Death could not defeat him. And we're here today to recognize and celebrate that very thing. Dr. S.M. Lockridge um, once preached a sermon, and in that sermon he had just some of the most powerful words that I've ever read in a sermon. And we've looked at this before. It's called, That's My King. And the closing part of that sermon, he spoke these words. He said, speaking of Jesus, I wish I could describe him, but yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invisible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king, that's my king, and that's who we're here to, to celebrate today. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. You and I do not serve a dead king. We serve a resurrected king. And so this morning, what I want us to do in the beginning part of our message together, I want us to journey back to the wee hours of Friday morning. And we're going to look at a trial that occurred where Pilate will bring before the crowd a, a, a man who was condemned to death because he was a murderer and also bring before the crowd the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this story together. And what we're going to see is we're going to see how Jesus took our place upon the cross of Calvary. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 26 together. So Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 26. And these are the words that we read. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. 
And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You know, we really don't know much about Barabbas. But what we do know is all four of the Gospels mention Barabbas by name. In fact, 38 verses are ascribed to Barabbas. But yet, there is not one spoken word recorded from Barabbas in the Word of God. So we don't know much about him. We don't know anything about his family life. Was he married? Did he have children? Um, What was it that caused him to, to become such an evil man? We don't know any of those things. But what we do know is this. Barabbas was guilty. He was guilty of insurrection and murder. There are many people that have claimed their innocence after being falsely accused. But to my knowledge, Barabbas never did that. There are many people that have, have, have been falsely accused for a crime they didn't commit But Barabbas didn't do that. But here's what I know about Barabbas. Scripture tells me. First of all, in Matthew, we find out that he was a notorious prisoner. In Luke, we see that he started an insurrection, meaning he had rebelled against the Roman government. He had created civil unrest. One writer said that he would be a modern-day revolutionary terrorist. And we also know that Barabbas murdered at least one person, if not multiple people. Mark tells us that he was a rebel in prison, meaning that whenever he was thrown into prison, he was still causing problems. And then we see in John that he was also a robber. Translated, this was one bad dude, right? This was one bad dude that had caused much, much unrest within the city of Jerusalem. What does Barabbas deserve? According to the law, he deserved death. And reaching all the way back to to the Bible's beginning, to to history's beginning, in Genesis chapter 9, we read these words. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What did Barabbas deserve? Barabbas deserved death, didn't he? What do we know about Barabbas? We know this, that he was 100% guilty. Notice next. Notice that Jesus was innocent. How many of you have ever been falsely accused of something? Raise your hand if you've ever been falsely accused of something. Most of us in this room, I was trying to think, man, what's the one thing that, that wrecked me probably to my core because I was falsely accused? And, and I remember a time at my last church. And I remember um, one, one afternoon, I was in the hallway of the church, and there was this lady that came in the church, and she was absolutely livid with me. I don't remember this lady's name, um, but, but what I do remember is this. She was a church member, and one of her friends had visited the church. And apparently, I said to that lady, you are not welcome here because you are not wearing shoes. And, and um, 
I was like, excuse me? And she said, you said she was not welcome in this church because she was not wearing shoes. And I was like, I walk around this church all the time without my shoes on. I was a student pastor, and so there were times that we would do things around the church, and I would be up there maybe all night, and I'd take my shoes off. It's not uncommon for me to walk around without my shoes on. But I was accused by this lady, and, and to my knowledge, that lady never stepped foot in that church again. You know, I take things like that personally because for me to say, hey, you're not welcome here means that, hey, that's somebody that's not welcome to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would never have said something like that, but yet I was falsely accused of that, and I promise you that, that my name was dirt for both of those women within that community. Here's what we know about Jesus. Within all of human history, there has never been a person that had never committed one sin. Jesus is that person. An unbeliever finds this hard to believe, but Jesus never lied, cheated, stole, or used foul language. He never backtalked his his parents. He never used his father's name in vain, and he never coveted his neighbor's possessions. He never did any of those things, yet he was still condemned to die. Understand the religious leaders knew that Jesus was innocent. They knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was innocent, but yet they still wanted him dead. Why did they want him dead? Because he was a threat to their way of life. They knew he was innocent. And even though they rejected Jesus, they could not deny what Jesus had done. Never before had there ever been anyone speak with the kind of authority that Jesus spoke with. Never before had there been anyone do the kind of supernatural things that Jesus did. I mean, just think about it. He, he calmed the raging waters of the Sea of Galilee. He, he fed thousands of people with a boy's lunch. He healed the blind. The mute could speak. The lame could walk. The deaf could hear those that were demon-possessed were set free, and he raised to life the dead. Jesus was a Savior who had come to heal the broken, physically broken and spiritually broken, but yet he was condemned to die. So the religious leaders knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate also knew that Jesus was innocent, Time and time again, as we read through that, our focal passage this morning, we saw time and time again where Pilate tried to, 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 to give to the crowd Barabbas, but the crowd wanted Jesus. In verse 24, Pilate washed his hands of Jesus' blood, declaring that he found no grounds for giving Jesus the death penalty. Jesus was 100% innocent. No doubt about it. But notice next that Barabbas lived and Jesus died. In verse 15, we read these words, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Jerusalem was under Roman rule during the first century. And, and, and the Romans were a very oppressive government. 
They, they required um, a, a lot of the Jewish people. And so to make amends for, for the oppression, what they would do every, every year come the high Jewish holiday called Passover is they would release to the crowd a prisoner as a goodwill offering. And, 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 and on this particular day, what Pilate does is he brings out two criminals, two people that were accused of crimes. He brought out Jesus and he brought out Barabbas. And we know Jesus was innocent, right? The crowd knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Religious leaders knew that Jesus was innocent. And so for Pilate, it was a no-brainer that the crowd was going to ask for Jesus. And then he brings out Barabbas, the, the man accused of murder and insurrection, a bad dude that had done much wrong. And he brings him out before the people, and he says, Who shall I deliver to you? And to Pilate's surprise, the crowd begins to cry out, Barabbas. Give to us Barabbas. Give to us Barabbas. What should I do then with this Jesus? Let him be crucified, is what was shouted out on that day. In Matthew 27, verses 20 through 23, again we read, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Consider the consequences of the decision that that crowd made on that day. Pilate would go on, and we see here, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Think about the consequences of that statement. Let the, this innocent man's blood be on us and on our children. What kind of a people would do that? What kind of a people would sell their soul and the soul of their children with such a statement like that? Let his blood be on us and on our children. You know who would do that? Mad men and women. Men and women under the influence of demonic spirits. The choice had been made. For Jesus, it meant more suffering. He had already received beatings throughout the night. He had already stood before the religious leaders and was found guilty. He had already stood before Herod and had been found guilty. And now he stands before Pilate also being condemned and being found guilty. And he had already been beaten, but more beatings would come. For Barabbas, think about Barabbas for a moment. For Barabbas, it meant that he was a free man. There would be no record whatsoever of any wrongdoing. His record was expunged. It was clean that day whenever he was set free. Tradition says that Barabbas actually went to Golgotha and witnessed Jesus as he died upon that cross. As I read that, um, I thought, 
that wouldn't be surprising. It wouldn't be surprising to think that Barabbas would have gone to the hill called Calvary and witnessed Jesus die in his place. Barabbas lived and Jesus died. The people wanted Barabbas to be released and they wanted Jesus to be crucified. Here's the thing about Barabbas. Of all the people that lived during the days of Jesus, Barabbas is the only person that could say in a literal sense that Jesus took my place. I mean, think about that. He's the only person that could say in a literal sense, I should be the one on that cross, not Jesus. He was able to say that Jesus became my substitute. And guess what? Every single one of us in this room can also make that declaration. That Jesus became our substitute. He took our place. We should have been up on that cross for the wrong that we had committed. But yet Jesus was there taking our place. Three years before this moment, John the Baptist was down in the Jordan River. And he was baptizing men and women that had come to him repenting of their sins and making their heart ready for the arrival of the Messiah. And as he's down in those waters, he looks up and he sees Jesus coming. And John the Baptist spoke these words. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John made that declaration long before Jesus went to the cross, long before Jesus became the Lamb of God, long before he became our sacrificial Lamb who shed his blood so that every one of us in this room that place our faith and trust in him could believe in him. Jesus is our substitute. So he's hanging on the cross, having taken not only the place of Barabbas, but also taken our place as well. Ralph, he took your place. George, he took your place. Justin, he took your place. Sam, he took your place. Mike, he took your place. Randy, he took your place. He took all of our place on that cross on that day. Jesus indeed became our substitute. What a beautiful picture of grace. You know, all of us in this room are like Barabbas. Maybe not to the extent of, of his sin. Did, have we committed sin? We may not be murderers. We may not be insurrectionists. We may not have ever started an a, a, a unholy revolution. But all of us in this room are sinners, right? All of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us in this room have failed to live up to God's standards for our lives. You know what those standards were? Absolute perfection. But you know why Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins? Because he realized that you and I have never achieved absolute perfection. So he came and he died upon that cross for us and became absolute perfection for us and washed us clean of our imperfection. And yeah, we still make mistakes every single day, don't we? Every single day I fall short of God's glory and God's expectation for my life, as do you. But you know what the difference today 
between my life today and my life um, 32 years ago, no, 34 years ago, um, no, actually 35 years ago. Man, I don't even know how old I am anymore. Um, 35 years ago, I gave my life to Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. 35 years ago, Jesus cleansed me of my sin and forgave me of that sin. 35 years ago, I recognized that Jesus indeed was, was my substitute. He became, for me, my Lord and Savior. Has he become your Lord and Savior? Romans 6.23, we read, For the wages of sin is death. What every single one of us in this room, what we deserve is death. But you know what? Because of God's good gift for us, he came and Jesus died for us and provided a way that we could be forgiven of our sins. Notice our final point this morning. It is this. Jesus guarantees our eternal future. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, we read these words. Peter wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus guarantees for us, if we place our faith and trust in him, that he will forgive us of our sins. You know, I know that in this room, there may be some of you who are skeptics. You may be here this morning, you find it hard to believe the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'd be willing to say that many people in this room once believed as you. Many in this room once were skeptics like you may be today. But for those that are no longer skeptics, there came a point in their lives when they placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One of the most important atheists to believe in Jesus was a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. He would become one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. Um, for those of you who don't know who he is, he wrote the books Chronicle of Narnia. He also wrote a bunch of other theological works but, but a man that's life was radically changed when he gave his life over to Jesus Christ. In his book, Mirror Christianity, he wrote these words. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has left that open. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis is not the first skeptic that would place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, was he? Think about Peter in the Bible. Think about some of the other disciples as well. Would, 
men die for a lunatic? Would, would men die for someone whom they did not believe with absolute certainty that he was the son of God? You know, for the disciples, many of them were imprisoned. They were persecuted. They were ridiculed. And they even died a martyr's death. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8, Paul wrote these words. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is firsthand testimony proven that Jesus Christ indeed did rise to life again. There was a first century Jew by the name of Josephus. He was not a Christian, and as far as history reports, he never became a Christian. Yet he wrote of Jesus and documented about this following of Jesus. He was born just after the resurrection of Christ, but But because of the growth of Christianity, he could not help but write about what he witnessed. He wrote these words some 2,000 years ago. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that they had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was, he, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had reported wonders. And the tribe of the Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. Josephus is regarded as one of the the most important historians to document um, Jewish history from 100 B.C. to 100 A.D. What he wrote can be trusted and is trusted widely today. So, so, So we can believe that Jesus indeed did rise to life again. And there's also proof of his resurrection because lives were transformed, right? I mean, think about the disciples, okay? There were 12 disciples that would follow after Jesus. We know that one betrayed Jesus, all right? And so then there was 11 that were left. On the day that Jesus was crucified, most likely just John was there. The other 10 had scattered. But upon Jesus rising to life again and showing himself before his disciples, those men became radically changed. Think about Peter. What did Peter do? Three times before that rooster crowed, what did Peter do? He denied Jesus, didn't he? And he was left a broken man. But Jesus would appear to Peter and restore Peter. He would restore him back to his place of ministry. And guess what Peter did? Peter would become one of the greatest champions for Christ. You remember up in the upper room, there were 120 people that were gathered following the resurrection of Jesus. 120 were in the room and they were praying and they were waiting and they were anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. 
And when the Holy Spirit came, it radically took over the lives of those in that room. And what did those men and women do? They hit the streets and they began to prophesy of all that Jesus had done. And they accused those 120 of what? Being drunk. And But what did Peter say? He said, it's just 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. So maybe if it was later in the day, there could have been. I don't know. Maybe alcohol was a big problem back then. But he's like, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. But then what did Peter do? And Peter stood up before the people, and he preached one of the most important sermons ever preached, and probably one of the most powerful sermons ever to be preached. And on that day, 3,000 people trusted in Jesus, placed their faith in Jesus, and repented of their sins. What a glorious day that was. Peter would go on and do great things for the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is said of him that he he died a martyr's death, and that he was crucified with his head being down and his feet upwards because he said, I'm unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as Christ was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 21 through 22, we read these words. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, because of our sin, what we deserve is death. But because of Christ and the work that he did upon that cross, all of us in this room can experience life. If we would place our faith and trust in him, Jesus wants to set you free this morning. You may be here this morning, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you were to die today, you may not know where you would spend eternity. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person to ever walk this earth, with the exception of Jesus, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we looked at a second ago, the consequences for our sin, according to Romans 6.23, is death, right? The wages of sin is death. Because of your sin and my sin, what we deserve is death. But Jesus came and he provided for us a free gift, didn't he? He provided a gift for us and that is eternal life if we would place our trust and our faith in him. We see here, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the only way that you and I can enter into an eternal relationship with God the Father. He's the only way. In John 3, 16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is making a declaration right there that he is the only way to eternity. He would go on to say in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. What does that mean? That means that there is just one way to heaven. There isn't many roads. There isn't many tributaries that lead to one road that will gain people access into heaven. There is one road, and there is one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, and you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what is keeping you from doing that today? What is keeping you from placing your faith and trust in him and repenting of your sins and crying out to Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior?
What is keeping you from doing that today? Jesus says that if we confess with our mouth that Christ is Lord, we shall be saved. In Romans 10, 9, Paul wrote these words. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. What does it take to become a Christian? It takes this. You acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is Christ and that he is Lord. And not only must you acknowledge that he is Christ and Lord, but you also make a commitment that you're going to live for him, that you're going to give your life over to him, that you are going to make him Lord and Savior of your life. Now, there in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You know what Jesus Christ does to a life that has been surrendered over to him? He makes it new. He sets us free. He sets us free from that collision course with hell that we're on. And he, and he literally allows us to do it in about face. We're no longer are we on that collision course with hell, but now we're on a, on, on a glorious road to heaven. Some of you may be here this morning, and right now, if you were to say, which road am I on? You may say, well, right now I'm on a collision course with hell because I've never given my life over to Jesus Christ. And I'd love to see you today to write that and go from this direction to this direction because you've repented of your sins and you've cried out to Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. You know what the Bible says in Romans 10, 13? It says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone that does that. Have you done that? You know, two people that day stood before the crowd. There was Jesus, an innocent man, God and our Savior, one who spoke all things into existence, was being condemned to die by all of those that he had created. I mean, think about that. Pretty, pretty, pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. Those that he created and knit and formed in, in their mother's wombs were standing out in the crowd looking upon Jesus and saying, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus stood there, and then there was also Barabbas, this murderer and insurrectionist, this man who was a robber, a thief, was standing there as well. The people chose on that day Barabbas. They chose a man that, did he ever give his life over to Jesus? We don't know. But they chose a man that represented sin that day. And that man was set free. And they crucified Jesus. Now, don't get mad at that crowd because all of these things had to happen. Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to become the sacrificial lamb for all of us in this room. All of these things were set in motion when time first began. But he went to that cross and he died on that cross for our sins. Crowd chose Barabbas today. Today, let me ask you this. Who will you choose? Will you choose to represent Barabbas or will you choose to represent Jesus? What will your choice be today? You may be here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't know for certain if you were to die today where you'd spend eternity. I want to invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. And that is to repent of your sins and to make Christ 
Lord and Savior of your life. In just a moment, I'm going to be standing here at the front, and if there's a decision you need to make, I want to invite you to come. By you coming, what you're saying is, man, I need Jesus. I need to give my life over to Jesus Christ today because I recognize that he died in my place. He became my substitute 2,000 years ago. If you don't know Jesus, you come this morning. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And if there's a decision you need to make, you come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. Father, on this glorious morning, the greatest morning in all of human history, we come before you today thanking you for dying on the cross for our sins, thanking you for, for, for rising to life again and defeating death. Father, thank you for providing a way that all of us can enter into eternity, an eternal relationship with you. If we would just place our faith and trust in you and repent of our sins. Father, I pray right now that if there is someone here this morning that is yet to give their life over to you, they've let, yet to repent of their sins, I pray that today they'll do that very thing, Father. Lord, just move now. Speak to every heart in this room. And Lord, whatever decision needs to be made, Father, draw people unto yourself. Father, there may be some here this morning that need to come and place their faith in you today. There may be some in this room, Lord Jesus, that they've gone astray. Father, they have, have failed to keep their eyes on you. And as a result, this morning, they need to come and just recommit their lives to you and say, hey, I haven't been living the way that I need to live, but today I want to live for Jesus Christ. I want to get my life right with Jesus and start living for Him, and stop living for myself. Father, I don't know what decision needs to be made, but you do, Father, speak to every heart in this room, and may we all respond accordingly. Father, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.